dreadfully nervous. I had been and am. But why will you say that I am mad? The disease has sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in the heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Hearken, and observe how healthily, how calmly I tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain, but once conceived, it haunted me day and night. Object, there was none. Passion, there was none. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold, I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, this was it. One of his eyes resembled that of a vulture, a pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold, and so, by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Now, this is the point. You fancy me mad. Madmen know nothing. But you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded, with what caution, with what foresight, with what dissimulation I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than the whole week before I killed him. And every night, about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it, oh so gently. And then, when I had made an opening sufficient for my head, I put in a lantern, all closed, closed, so that no light shone out, and then, I thrust in my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved it slowly, very, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening so far that I could be seen by him as he lay upon his bed. Ha! Would a madman have been so wise as this? And then, when my head was well into the room, I undid the lantern cautiously, oh, so cautiously, cautiously, for the hinges creaked. I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye, and this I did for seven long nights, every night just at midnight, but I found the eye always closed, and so it was impossible for me to do the work, for it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. And every morning when day broke, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone and inquiring how he had passed the night. So you see, he would have been a very profound old man indeed to suspect that every night, just at twelve, I looked upon him while he slept. Upon the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watch's minute hand moves more quickly than mine did. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers, my sagacity. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph, to think that there I was, opening the door, little by little, and he did not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea, and perhaps he heard me 
for he moved on the bed suddenly, as if startled. Now, you may think that I drew back, but no. His room was black as pitch with the thickness of darkness, for the shutters were close-fastened through fear of robbers. And though I knew he could not see the opening of the door, and I kept pushing it steadily, steadily. I had my head in and was about to open the lantern when my thumb slipped on the tin fastening and the old man sprang up in bed crying out, Who's there? I kept quite still and said nothing. For a whole hour I did not move a muscle, and in the meantime I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in bed, listening, just as I have done, night after night, hearkening to the death watches in the wall. Presently, I had heard a slight groan, and I knew it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or of grief. Oh, no. It was the low, stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when it overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it has welled up from my own bosom, deepening with its dreadful echo the terrors that distracted me. I say I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt, and pitied him, although I chuckled at heart. I knew he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise when he had turned in the bed. His fears had been ever since growing upon him. He had been trying to fancy them causeless, but could not. He had been saying to himself, It is nothing but the wind in the chimney, it is only a mouse crossing the floor, or it is merely a cricket which has made one single chirp. Yes. He has been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions, but he found it all in vain, all in vain, because death, in approaching him, had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim. It was was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel, although he never saw or heard, to feel the presence of my head within the room. When I had waited a long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at a length, a single dim ray, like the thread of a spider, shot from the crevice and fell upon the vulture eye. It was open wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness, a dull blue with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my own bones. But I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the ray as if by instinct precisely on the spot. And now, have I not told you what what you mistake for madness is but an over-acuteness of the senses? Now, I say there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well, too. It was the beating of the old man's heart. It increased my fury as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier to charge, but even yet I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could to maintain the ray upon the eye. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker and louder and louder every instant, 
The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder, I say, louder every moment. Do you mark me well? I have told you that I am nervous, so I am. And now, at the dead hour of night, amid the dreadful silence of that old house, so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. Yet, for some minutes longer, I refrained and stood still. But the beating grew louder, louder. I thought the heart must burst, and now a new anxiety seized me. The sound could be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell, I threw open the lantern and leaped into the room. He shrieked once, once only. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him, then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. But for many minutes, the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length, it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eye would trouble me no more. If still you think me mad, you will think so no longer when I describe the precise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned, and I worked hastily, but in silence. First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head and the arms and the legs. Then I took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and disposed all within the scantlings. I then replaced the boards so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot whatever. I had been too wary for that. A tub had caught it all. When I had made an end to these labors, it was four o'clock, still dark as midnight, as the bell sounded the hour, and there came a knocking at the street door. I went out to open it with a light heart, for what had I now to fear? There entered three men who introduced themselves with perfect suavity as officers of the police. A shriek had been heard by a neighbor during the night. A suspicion of foul play had been aroused. Information had been lodged at the police office, and they, the officers, had been deputed to search the premises. I smiled. For what had I to fear? I bade the gentlemen welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own in a dream. The old man mentioned, or the old man, I mentioned, was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search, search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure, undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from all their fatigues, while I, myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I answered cheerily, they chatted of familiar things. But ere long, I felt myself getting pale and wished them gone. My head ached, and I fancied a ringing in my ears, but still they sat and chatted. The ringing became more distinct. It continued and, and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definitiveness until, at length, I found the noise was not within my ears. No doubt I now grew very pale, but I talked more fluently and with a heightened voice, yet the sound increased, and what could I do? 
It was a low, dull, quick sound, much as the sound a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I arose and argued about trifles in a high key and with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced to the floor to and fro with heavy strides, as if excited to a fury by the observations of the men, but the noise steadily increased. Oh God, what could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting and grated it upon the boards, but the noise arose over all and continually increased. It grew louder, 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 and still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? Almighty God, no. They heard, they suspected, they knew. They were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought, and this I think. But anything was better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear these hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die. And now, again, hark, louder, louder, louder. Villains, I shrieked, dissemble no more. I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. Here, here, it is the beating of his hideous heart. Boy, there is just nothing more encouraging than when somebody feels the need to tell you over and over that they are definitely not crazy. I feel better, don't you? (laughs) Oh boy. It is notable that the unnamed, let's say, narrator rather than protagonist, says that he has a morbid over-acuteness of the senses. And if you've read The Fall of the House of Usher last week, Poe seems like to like this particular affliction. It kind of reminds me of misophonia, but with all of your senses rather than just hearing. In The Fall of the House of Usher, Roderick even says that it's hard to find clothes that he can bear to wear because of the feeling of the texture on his skin. Unlike Roderick, who admits that he feels unwell, mentally and physically, this narrator claims very insistently that everything's fine. He's, he's totally sane. It's, it's all okay. So he's a little less self-aware than Roderick, who, while he was becoming unhinged, he was definitely aware of that change. This guy is pretty sure that everybody else is the problem, adding a new little splash of paranoia to a very familiar kind of illness that Poe likes to use. Now, this is one of Poe's shortest stories, and scholars believe that Poe stripped it of all excess detail to kind of steamroll the narrator's obsession and madness. We watch it, I guess snowball is a better way to describe the effect rather than steamrolling. He doesn't see the irony that while he cannot understand why anyone would think he is mad, his whole rant is a spiral of psychosis. Nor does he think it's crazy that he has emotionally separated killing the old man who he claims to love to the act of quote-unquote killing the old man's eye. I'm no expert on how to human, but to disassociate your victim from his own eyeball is not a normal way to think. The relationship between the killer and the victim is unclear, just as the killer is never given a real name. Poe liked to leave a lot of his main characters nameless, which is kind of kind of weird, and uh, I do find it weird, too, that the relationship between these two is never clarified. There's a lot of people that think that it's kind of a master-servant relationship, that maybe it was the person's valet, since it does seem to be a person of some opulence, but um, 
There are others who suggest that it's a father-son relationship. Either way, it's clear that these two have known each other for years, and the younger man, I assume it's a younger man since he calls the guy the old man, um, has obviously been in a caretaking position of this person for quite some time. So um, it's kind of weird that it all just boils over right here. I guess it does kind of raise your awareness that you can never be, oh, you know, totally sure what's happening in the mind of the people around you. You don't know, you know, despite how friendly or caring they may seem on the outside, you don't ever really know what they're thinking. And this kind of plays into that kind of fear where somebody very close to you, somebody who you depend on, who has known you for years, may just be, um, let's just say plotting events that are not in your best interest, I guess, you know. Now, I don't know if anyone else likes to view this story from the perspective of the policeman rather than that of the madman, but it makes the story completely hilarious. Just if you ever go through and reread it, but think about it from the from the scene where the policemen enter the home, picture the entire story from their perspective. I don't know, I heard somebody read the story out loud a few years ago, and ever since then I can't get the policeman's perspective out of my head because the narrator is insisting, I'm not crazy, I'm not crazy, I don't know why you guys would think I was crazy, I just wanted to kill this man's eyeball, and if it happened to involve killing him, that's fine, I just, I wanted to kill the eye guys, and he describes, you know, sitting in this room with the policeman, and he's getting louder and louder, and shouting, and swinging his chair, and swearing out of nowhere, and just, you know, acting crazy, and I'm going, you know, from the policeman, Everything was pretty normal up until this point from their perspective. And yeah, I mean, just the irony that he doesn't see any of these actions as being, you know, mentally unwell shows just how far gone he is because he cannot conceive of why on earth anybody would think he was crazy. So, I don't know, just to me, I always kind of chuckle about the story when I picture it from the policeman's perspective where they've just had kind of a... a normal kind of domestic disturbance sound you know loud noise call they go to investigate a loud sound and i don't know i just feel like this would leave an interesting how was work dear discussion with their wives at the end of the night well yeah well you know it's pretty normal i went in and talked to this guy he shouted and it turns out he he says he was just having a nightmare and then he just starts going crazy and swinging furniture around and shouting and stuff i don't know it had to have been a funny story for these three policemen. Thank goodness they didn't go into the home alone, as you sometimes see in these kind of stories, right? But I don't know. It's just, it's a different perspective to look at the story from, and I just can't get it out of my head how weird and surreal it would be to go into this man's house as one of the police officers. And the irony that this person is absolutely 100% sure that they are sane and they're clearly not. I wrote an essay in high school, um, creative writing class, about um, how crazy people don't know they're crazy, and so theoretically we could all be crazy and simply not know it. And then the fact that I don't think I'm crazy could be proof that maybe I am. And this short story has always given me kind of serious vibes to that effect, where this narrator is so certain of his own sanity which clearly we as the readers, just from his monologue alone, know to be uh, pretty shaky grounds for his argument. 
Anyway, thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed our Halloween season specials as much as I have. It's Halloween and Christmas are my favorite times of the year to make this podcast. So I, I really hope you've loved spooky season as we get into Christmas time and more festive stories. I'm, I'm super, super excited about it. And uh, thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Please like, subscribe, and share this with anybody you think would be interested in some spooky stories for Halloween. And, uh, you know, be safe trick-or-treating this weekend, guys. Bye.